0: In my right hand is most of the Hebrew Bible. In my left hand is the remainder. Let's do a show about... Ah, you get the idea. Book. This is Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I am Josh Way. Today's show is a landmark. This is our last podcast in the Hebrew Bible, and it's going to be a doozy. We're going to look at 12 whole scrolls today, the most material we've ever covered in a single show. These are the so-called minor prophets, not because they're any less significant than the major prophets, but simply because their writings are shorter. These books are every bit as colorful and creative as anything else in the Bible, and perhaps it's a fool's errand to cram them all in in a single presentation. But I always like to cover more ground than less if possible, and at this point I think a bird's eye overview will suit us best. Each of these Hebrew scrolls has a unique historical and literary context, so we'll take them one at a time. But let's keep in mind some of the broad observations we've made about biblical prophets in the past here on Book. First, they're not fortune-tellers so much as they are pundits, much more interested in the headlines of their own day than the religion of the future. They often employ fiery language and creative play-acting to speak truth to the powers that be in Israel, who, in the eyes of the prophets, are always leading the nation down a deadly path. The survey we're about to take will also reinforce our observation that prophets came from all sorts of backgrounds and lifestyles, often leaving a mundane job for a season just to address some urgent crisis, then presumably going back to work if they weren't killed. Here, then, are the minor prophets. First up is Hosea, and already I have premise problems. Hosea is actually a fairly substantial book. Our translation's broken into 14 chapters, making it longer than some books to which we've dedicated entire podcasts. But for our purposes, the book can be summarized and contextualized rather simply. So just stop criticizing me for two seconds. <clears throat> Sorry. After establishing that Hosea lived and prophesied in the 8th century BCE during the reigns of some familiar kings, including Ahaz and Hezekiah, the text gets right to the rather lurid point, verse 2. Yahweh said to Hosea, get yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. Now, if you picked up a Bible and just turned to Hosea without any context or background, you'd be perplexed and perhaps even offended by a story in which a man is instructed by his God to marry a whore and have some whore babies, just to make some kind of a cranky point. But just by having read other texts in the Hebrew Bible, we at least have some idea of what we're looking at. We remember how the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, indulged in outrageous acts of performance art, personally embodying their messages in creative outbursts designed to grab Israel's attention. And we know from the Torah and elsewhere that whoredom, in this context, rampant fornication and adultery, is a common metaphor for Israel's idolatry, worshipping the gods of the land instead of Yahweh. Hosea operates in the northern kingdom, Israel, and very much occupies the same political space as 1st Isaiah. This is the 8th century buildup to the Assyrian attack on Israel and Syria. He even employs tactics similar to Isaiah's, giving his children descriptive names like No Mercy and Not My People. In chapter 1, Hosea marries Gomer, the aforementioned wife of whoredom, and apparently takes on a second partner in chapter 3, though Christian interpretations squint really hard to make that look like the same woman. We wouldn't want the prophet to do anything naughty in proving his point. After colorfully demonstrating his rebuke, the rest of Hosea's book is a catalog of accusations and warnings of inevitable punishment, peppered with words of hope for Israel's restoration. Joel Joel is a brief little scroll with a short, sharp point and millions of legs, antennae, and wings. This prophet describes the destruction and horror of the Assyrian invasion as both metaphor, an all consuming swarm of locusts, and then as a real life experience. From what we know of the Assyrian Empire and their tactics, the locust imagery isn't far off. The armies of the north moved throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, destroying everything in their path. The book was most likely written long after the events of the invasion, though it's difficult to pinpoint an exact date. The second half of the tiny book sees vivid hope for restoration for both Israel and Judah, characterized by this famous passage. In, uh, chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass after that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will preach. Old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on your male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Next up is Amos. Now I have had the pleasure of studying this one in Hebrew, and it is an amazing example of what we miss by reading these texts in English. Amos is a treasury of jokes, puns, wordplay, and other linguistic treats, most of which are completely lost in translation to English. Of course, that's the sad reality for just about every text in the Bible. Amos was one of the, quote, sheep breeders at Tekoa. Now, some say that means he was just a simple shepherd. Others say it's a more technical term in that he was actually a wealthy businessman. Whatever the case, he had a normal job before, and we assume after, he found himself called to be a prophet. Amos was from the southern territory of Judah, but his prophetic campaign took him to the north, to the kingdom of Israel, to, you guessed it, warn of coming judgment in the form of Assyrian violence. And while his contemporaries like Hosea called Israel to account on grounds of religious fidelity, Amos is famous for the way he appeals to social justice. Here, Israel's biggest sin isn't that she followed after idols and other gods, but that the nation's fat cats are getting fatter while the poor are getting poorer. Good thing we solved that one here in the future. At the heart of Amos' message is a rhetorical trap sprung by the prophet on the unsuspecting priests and religious leaders of Israel. He counts off a litany of condemning oracles against Israel's enemies, Gaza, Edom, Tyre, Moab, etc., and he hits a crescendo by calling the same judgment upon Judah to the south. Now, this would have elicited snickers and perhaps even cheers from the northerners who considered Judah to be virtually as wicked as those others. But the prophet goes one further, reserving his harshest words of condemnation for his audience, the Israelite elite. It's a rollicking good read. Obadiah. Obadiah, or Obadiah, meaning servant of Yahweh, is a very short prophetic text from the time of Judah's Babylonian exile. It addresses two of the pressing crises of that era. Punishment for Judah's enemies, in this case, especially Edom, an ancient enemy who was still annoying Israel at that time and who would themselves soon fall to Babylon, and restoration for Judah. Obadiah ends with one of the most explicit enunciations of the Jewish hope for the kingdom of Yahweh to be re-established in Jerusalem. Next up is Jonah. We did a whole show about Jonah, one of the most maligned and mangled books of the prophets. See book episode 23 for much more. Check that out, really. It's one of my favorites. Micah is another 8th century prophet, most likely a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah. He's Actually never referred to as a prophet, he's just a fellow from Judah with a lot to say about current events. His name is a question in Hebrew, who is like Yahweh? And the book ends with Micah asking Yahweh, who is a god like you? In his scroll, he brings a lawsuit against the Hebrew people on behalf of their god, decrying the corruption and injustice which characterized both the northern and southern kingdoms in that century. Like his contemporaries, Micah announces judgment and punishment on both Israel and Judah for their corruption, while also imagining what deliverance and restoration will look like. For Micah, it's a new ruler, a sort of servant king who comes from Bethlehem, a small town that's name can either mean house of bread or house of war. Now, of course, Christians read about a servant king coming from Bethlehem and their messianic prophecy alarm goes off. It certainly points in that direction, and the New Testament picks up on it. But let's also remember that this isn't just a cryptic prophecy hanging in midair, waiting to make sense someday in the future. It's first and foremost a look backward to King David, the only great ruler Israel ever had, and a little boy who came from, you guessed it, Bethlehem. Nahum. Nahum, or Nahum, is a volatile little book that channels fear of Assyrian terror into condemnation and mockery. It's interesting to read Nahum in contrast with Jonah because both scrolls feature prophets with urgent messages for Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Jonah reluctantly delivered a call to repentance and reformation, to which the city happily responded, much to the prophet's dismay. Now, in Nahum's day, not only has Nineveh returned to her wicked ways, she's become such an evil and reckless monster that God is going to destroy her. Repentance doesn't enter into the equation. Of course, that's only an easy surface reading of the two scrolls. They grow out of different contexts. Jonah is a very stylized legend, which has more to say about Israel than it does about Assyria, while Nahum is an urgent polemic against a looming and powerful enemy. Habakkuk. The short Habakkuk is a fascinating text with perhaps more in common with Job and Kohelet than with the prophets. Habakkuk lives in between the fall of Israel and the exile of Judah. It's been at least a hundred years since Assyria flattened the northern kingdom, and Babylon's shadow is creeping over Jerusalem. In the midst of this chaos and horror, Habakkuk looks heavenward and asks Yahweh, What is your problem? The book takes the form of two complaints against God by the prophet, followed by two reported responses from God. Habakkuk's first complaint God seems to be unjust. Violence begets more violence. Injustice goes unpunished. The innocent suffer. God's answer? You're not as innocent as you think you are. I am using Assyria and Chaldea, Babylon, to punish and refine you. Unsatisfied, Habakkuk tries again. Will you ever be done punishing us, Lord? Seems like it's all you do these days. God's final response? Stay tuned. Your suffering will end, and what's more... I will deal even more harshly with Babylon because they seem to be enjoying this way too much. Books like Nahum and Habakkuk raise all sorts of questions for us about God and war and history, but God's answer here seems to satisfy the prophet, and the book ends with a psalm of acceptance and praise. Zephaniah. Zephaniah is another prophet from the period between the great devastations of Israel and Judah. He announces coming judgment, which he calls the Day of Yahweh, on the southern kingdom at the hands of Babylon and offers the people a last chance to repent. He reminds his compatriots that judgment will also fall upon the nations of the world and wraps up with a vision of restoration and redemption, which, intriguingly, also appears to be for all the nations of the earth. Hmm. Haggai or Haggai. In the sixth century, around December 520, if the text is to be believed, a prophet named Haggai delivers a word from Yahweh to Zerubbabel, then governor of Judah, a Persian territory, and to Joshua the high priest that the time has come to rebuild his house, that is, the temple. The leaders of Judah comply and the temple is reconstructed, events also documented in Ezra and Chronicles. Haggai further prophesies that Yahweh's spirit and glory will remain with the people and eventually fill his house once more. He closes his writings with some words of praise for Zerubbabel, which is quite interesting given the ambivalent attitude toward that ruler elsewhere in scripture. Zechariah. We've talked about this before on book, but when the people of Judah returned to the land and the temple was rebuilt, there was a palpable feeling of anticlimax and even disappointment in spite of, or perhaps because of, what prophets like Haggai had promised. Persia still ruled over them, and there was no rapturous moment when the glory of God filled the temple and brought Jerusalem back to life. Zechariah's mission was to preach hope and patience to the disillusioned people of Judah. He did this by imagining, or envisioning if you like, the glorification of the temple that hadn't happened yet in real life. Through a series of vivid apocalyptic scenarios, he assured Judah that Yahweh was still present and that he had a mysterious cosmic plan, not only to once again inhabit the temple, but to reclaim Israel's throne for himself and thus bring his ultimate purposes for the whole world to completion. There are many allusions to Zechariah in the New Testament, most of them unsurprisingly in John's Revelation. Meanwhile, here in the Hebrew Bible, the second scroll of Chronicles tells us that Zechariah was murdered by Joash, the king of Jerusalem at that time. Bummer. Malachi. The final scroll in the Hebrew Bible canon is Malachi, or Malchi. It offers no explicit time frame, but is assumed to have been written in the 5th century, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Malachi's short scroll addresses the same disillusionment and morass confronted by Zechariah, the prophet presents a series of charges against the people of Judah. They've doubted Yahweh's love, they've dishonored him with empty sacrifices, and they have offended Yahweh with idolatry and one another with adultery. He concludes by imagining the great vindication which will come one day for all Israel. And that's all there is. That was an all-too-brief survey of a whole lot of intense material, but I think we have a good grasp on the people, events, and themes of the minor prophets. In one sense, this collection is as diverse and dynamic as the whole of the Hebrew Bible. At the same time, there's a surprising oneness to these texts, as they all face the various tragedies of defeat and exile, with equal parts finger-wagging and hope for restoration. We also notice a complete lack of the sort of mystical, detached soothsaying we've often assumed biblical prophecy to consist of. These aren't dark and cryptic warnings presented in a vacuum waiting for events thousands of years in the future to make sense of them. They're Israel and Judah prophecies for Israel and Judah people. They offer a specific hope in the face of specific problems on behalf of a specific God. That the whole library of Hebrew scripture ends on a note of anticlimax and unfulfilled hope is, for one thing, a signal that what we've been reading, with all of its art and imagination, has been a product of real humans living real history. And so our adventure through the Hebrew Bible ends. We'll take a short break and regroup for our look at the Greek texts, which we call the New Testament. Lots to say about that when we get there, but let's say one thing now. Without the Hebrew Bible, there is no New Testament, And without a knowledge of that Hebrew Bible, there's no hope of even beginning to understand what's going on there. I guess what I'm saying is, don't delete these first 27 episodes. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, email me at book at joshway.com you can even leave me a voicemail at 801-760-3013, 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it right here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible pals. I will catch you next time.